Welcome to Getting Unschooled. I'm Christopher Lawley. I hope you are all well and staying safe. We are hitting a point in school year, at least here in North America, and in my experience, where we would normally be starting to run out of fuel and crawl to the finish line of the winter break. This year, as we hit a second or third wave of coronavirus, depending on where you are, it is particularly challenging. I think most of us have been talking about how we need to adjust our expectations for what is possible in these extraordinary times. But in reality, what I see is that these sentiments may not be actually reflected in our behaviors. As with many patterns, this pandemic has placed a microscope over teachers' tendencies to be constantly pushing ourselves to greater levels of achievement. The question of what is actually enough has always been an important one and now it is being thrust in front of us in a way that cannot be ignored. I hope you are finding a sustainable place of good enough and that you are getting support in this. Today's episode is an interview with educator Kalinda Klein, recorded in February 2020. Kalinda is the curriculum lead for First Nation, Inuit, and Métis education with the Upper Grand District School Board in Guelph, Ontario. I've decided to take our interview and break it into two parts. I was listening to our recording again and again and was frankly unable to find parts that I could cut without losing all sorts of wisdom and insights that we can all benefit from. A very good problem to have. So today we will hear from Kalinda about her early career, how she transitioned into teaching Indigenous history, and what eventually led her into her current role. She discusses the personal journey of reconnecting with her Anishinaabe identity and navigating systems that are, as she points out, designed to maintain their own status quo. Kalinda's story stands as a wonderful example to me of one of the most powerful truths about storytelling. Through telling our stories, that is, sharing our experiences and wisdom with others, we provide others validation and resonance in aspects of our story that are universal, while also providing opportunities for our audience to learn and expand their understanding through the aspects that are particular to our own context. I am sure many of you will resonate with aspects of Kalinda's story around navigating her way through the school system and figuring out her identity both as a teacher and as an individual. And if you're like me, you'll gain new insights into how Indigenous education has finally found its place in our classrooms and the systemic challenges it still faces. There's so much more that could be said, but let's just go ahead and hear from Kalinda. So today we have Kalinda Klein with us. Uh, Kalinda has been teaching for 27 years and is currently the curriculum lead for First Nation Inuit and Métis education with the Upper Grand District School in Guelph, Ontario. She works with classroom teachers to help them better understand and teach on various topics, including culture, reconciliation, and colonialization. She is also a mother, an avid reader, and foodie. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me, Christopher. My elders have taught me to always introduce myself in the in the language, so I'm going to do that, and then I'll explain it, what it means. The Quay and Nabib Washington Quay and Dijnakaz, Makwa and Dodum, Kitigan Zibib Dunjaba, Nishnabe Quay and Dao. So I started by telling you what the name is, what my real name is. As you can call me Kalinda, that's what most people do. I also told you what my clan is. And I said I'm Makwa, so that's the bear clan. In introducing, telling you a little bit about my clan, then if you had any teachings and would know about that, you would understand what 
some of my roles and responsibilities in the community are. One of the responsibilities for the Bears is that we're the police or the justice. And so folks who know me would say that that's a really good fit because they know I've been policing other people's behavior since I was about two. <laughs> and, um, the other part of the of that is that we're also the medicine people for our community and and I have much to learn about that. I told you what the name of my community is. It's Kitigan CB and it's on my dad's side of the family. It's important for me to say that I've I've never lived in the community. My experience is only as a urban indigenous living in southwestern Ontario. Thank you so much for inviting me, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm really looking forward to getting to speak about some of the things you just spoke about and how they inform who you are as a as an educator as well. And as somebody who, like all of us, is working to try to find balance in a modern world that isn't sometimes uh, hospitable to that. I wonder if we could start off. I understand that you started your teaching career teaching special education and then transitioned into history. Can you talk a little bit about the early part of your career in terms of what you learned about who you are as a teacher and uh, what you needed in order to be sustainable in that role? I think that it's really beneficial for folks to start off in various roles, especially in special education. When I started my teaching career in 1992, that was the first year of big cutbacks in Ontario. And about 20% of us who graduated that year got jobs. So I I went into special education because that was the only job that I could get. That was the only space that opened up. And I was teaching developmentally delayed students, which, again, would not have been my first choice. I have a master's degree in history. I thought I was going to go in and start teaching history. And uh, since I've only actually had a full-time history gig for two years of my entire 27-year career, that's something that just doesn't happen very often. I didn't know that at the time. I ended up falling in love with doing those roles. So I taught special education in a variety of different roles for the first five years because each year I was declared surplus. So I was bumped and then sent to another school in a, with a different role. So I was teaching in section programs, therefore in Ontario, they're for hard-to-serve students who, who can't manage a regular school program, so they are separate from that, and there's a care and treatment component of that that's provided by an outside agency. Taught in those for a couple of early years, developmentally delayed. I taught in a congregated class for students with physical disabilities, and then I ended up quite young, being department head for special education at a really big high school in Scarborough. So all of that really taught me about flexibility. You have to be flexible when you work in special education. You can't go in any day and expect that whatever your agenda that's set is necessarily going to happen. Sometimes it does. Those are days for celebration. But most of the time, things didn't go as you'd planned. Something would come up, there'd be a crisis, and what you had to do was always be responding on the fly to that. Didn't get a lot of teaching on how to do that from faculty of education. So it was, it was really 
learning from the people who are around me. The really great thing about working in special education and those sorts of programs is that you're never in a classroom on your own. So there are child and youth workers and educational assistants and various different staff who come in and out of the program on a daily basis. It was really phenomenal for me to have that opportunity to learn from them on how to manage within that situation because most of them had been doing those roles for years. And I was sort of dropped in as a brand new teacher and didn't really know. So I, I really am, have lots of gratitude for all of those folks who were super patient with me and helped me learn how to navigate that. So when you moved finally into history, which is what you had trained in, did you know at that time that you had a particular interest in Indigenous education? I had started teaching the First Nations, Métis, Inuit studies courses around 2003, 2004, while I was still teaching special education in the board that I'm currently in. There were just courses developed and released in Ontario in 2001. And when our board had decided that we were going to have some pilot sites to try out those courses, I insisted on being able to teach that course. My principal at that time was was a bit reluctant because I was the head of special education in a big school with a very large special education department. The department had around 30 staff. So that's the size of some schools. And I insisted on it because I said, who else is going to teach it? You have someone in the school who is Nishnabe, and we're going to have someone who's not teach the course. That's not right. And so I I insisted on on teaching that course while I was still doing special education uh, as a department head. So it is a real challenge because sometimes there'd be a crisis and people would come into the middle of my class when I was teaching a lesson and and I'd have to stop and someone else would take over the class and I'd have to go and deal with something. It was actually quite comical sometimes. The students learned uh, to be flexible and I learned how to be really flexible in my my scheduling of the classes just in case something would, would come up. So I'd been doing that for some time. And then at one point, a different administrator, that other administrator had retired and a new one came in and that person wouldn't let me teach the course anymore unless I was going to leave the role as special education head. I, I just, I didn't have it in me at that point in time to, to fight because I was also having a personal crisis because my marriage was falling apart at the same time. And so I didn't fight it. And uh, I gave up teaching the course. And then when I decided I needed to go back in the classroom and be teaching, because there is a, a bit of a burnout phase, I think, for, for many folks in special education, because it really it can really drain your, your heart as well as uh, everything else about you. And I just knew I, I was ready for a change. The full-time history job came up, and I was still teaching the Indigenous Studies course as part of that. So uh, it was a really great opportunity to do that. It just makes sense to me. I don't know why, if there's an Indigenous staff member, why somebody else would be teaching the course, unless that staff member 
didn't want to teach the course. I know some folks who are in our systems don't want to do that, teach the course, because then you can't ever let it go. I don't cause I don't come home and stop being Nishnabe. So when you're working all day talking about the historical traumas that are still intergenerational traumas for many of us that we still carry, it doesn't stop at four thirty when you come home. Yeah. You know, I'm still Nishnabe, I'm still gonna be involved in the community, I'm still gonna be seeing different people, I'm still gonna be carrying that and thinking about that. So I have a, an appreciation why some folks don't want to do that. For me, I, I just couldn't see how I how I couldn't do that. It was really great to be able to teach in Ontario the grade 10 mandatory Canadian history class as someone who is Nishnabe because there was a little bit of a different focus in my class than in some of my colleagues' classes. And we didn't spend nearly the same amount of time on World War One and World War Two. We talked a lot about about the racism, the history of racism. We talked about residential schools. We talked about OCA crisis. We talked about things that not everyone else was necessarily talking about at that time. I do think it's different now because we've had some changes to our curriculum in the last couple of years that really flesh out the Indigenous content as a response to the truth and reconciliation calls to action. So that's definitely changed. So I'd say more of colleagues are, are doing that inclusion now. But at that time, which would have been, I guess, nine years ago now, there there were a few other people doing a little bit, but certainly not not like what I was doing. Yeah, I was. that was what struck me when you were talking, that you've been a part of the of the system as these changes have taken place. I mean, going from having an actual course, finally, in the curriculum to... I imagine that having the curriculum lead job that you now have did not exist back then. Do you feel like your own journey as a as a professional has grown in in kind of parallel with these changes in the system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I if you would have told me when I was in the faculty of education that I'd have a job like I have right now, I would have laughed because I wouldn't have believed you. I wouldn't have thought that it was possible to have someone who is spending their time working with teachers, the bulk of my time working with teachers on how to include Indigenous content into their courses that they're, that they're teaching from kindergarten to grade 12. And I wouldn't have believed that, certainly not to 27 years ago, probably not even really 15 years ago. My own personal journey has really shifted from the time that I became a mother myself. And I know I've talked to other folks that have often said the same sort of thing, not necessarily just Indigenous folks, but people who go on their own personal journey because they have a child and they want their child to grow up knowing things that they didn't know when they were growing up. I was always living in Southern Ontario, not directly connected to my community, which is two hours north of Ottawa. Not only that, my family is very assimilated, and and my father has always thought that that was a goal that we should have to be like everyone else. And so this journey of understanding like my culture and what that means, what it really means to be Nishnabe, really started when my son was born in in a serious way, and then more seriously. 
a couple of years before I took on this role. I remember when this job was advertised and I was just getting in the groove. I'd been two years in the history class. I had courses well-developed then. I was really enjoying myself. And then this position came available and I waffled. I wasn't sure that I wanted to take it because I had a feeling that it would be an all-consuming role, which, which it really has been. Yeah. And I talked to different friends and uh, elders that I worked with and said, what do I do? And, and they said, you, you have to put your name in the hat, that you have a responsibility to put your name forward and that maybe you won't get the, the job, but you have to try so I did, and then I got the role. At that time, the role was not just Indigenous education. It was also equity, and it was actually for two boards. That's crazy. It was also the local Catholic board. So it was the equity and Indigenous education support for the public and Catholic board locally for K-12. to Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's crazy, eh? <laughs> Hard to get your head around, yeah, how you would even know where to start. That was, yeah, that was a big part of it was, was that when things are so big like that, it sometimes is so overwhelming. It's hard to, to know where exactly to start. It's been a bit easier knowing that now it's just the public board and it's just Indigenous education. And that came about because the Ministry of Education at that time mandated the role. So every school board in Ontario is supposed to have someone who does my role. So that was how that shift changed into just doing that was from a ministry initiative. But still, it's, it's even bigger now, though, because when I first started, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And that, that's what I had a, a great interview with Sri Paradkar. She was the Atkin, Atkinson Fellow for the Toronto Star last year. And she did a really in-depth research journalism piece on education without oppression. And that was the main point that I rose with her was that teachers don't know what they don't know. And I think sometimes we... An educator, we expect ourselves to have the answers for things because that's what teachers do. They have the answers. They, they know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so it's a big shift to have people start to recognize that you don't know what you don't know. And there's so much room for learning about so many different things. And it's impossible for us to have known. Most of us didn't get any of this education in our own educational experiences as students ourselves. So I I don't recall having many conversations about First Nations or Métis or Inuit peoples when I was going to school myself as a student from kindergarten until high school. A couple of little conversations. There was one moment in about grade five where I remember being traumatized. And then because I'm, I'm mixed, my mom is not Indigenous. So if you look at me, you don't know necessarily what my background is. It was easy for me to go undercover and just never tell people. 
And so that's what I did. I just didn't talk about it, about that side of my of my background. And then in part because of this call through your job, and I'm hearing also when your son was born that there was kind of a, mm-hmm. a reawakening of that part of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I started ha- I started having those conversations in university where I kept I have a degree in in Canadian and American history without any Indigenous history courses. Um, so, you know, I knew something was off there, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I also know that that wouldn't be the case today. So I think that that's something that when I sometimes feel stuck and feeling like we're not moving ahead at the pace that I would like things to be moving. And when things don't move at the pace that we like, we sometimes think they're not moving forward at all. I I know that that's not the case, but sometimes it feels like that. I think there's no one who would be having a Canadian or American history degree in this country now who would not have Indigenous history as part of that degree. So that's change, and that's good change. Yeah. And when there is so much work to be done and you see the impact of the lack of integration of the things that still need to be done, that must be really hard to hold that that tension on a daily basis, mm-hmm. especially when you, you can see what needs to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, or what, what you really hope will, will end up happening. And, and often that, that hope of things changing is that, for me, I, I sometimes think that everyone else thinks in a similar way to myself. I know that's not true, but I'm also aware of what my echo chamber is. I'm aware that the folks that I, I'm mostly connected with are people who think similarly. So when I then come across those who don't, it can be a little shocking, but I'm, I'm so used to that now. That was how I, I felt at first, but I'm so used to it now that it just becomes part of the fabric of, of doing the work is to navigate that tension that you mentioned and thinking of our systems are are designed to not move. And so if we are working within systems that are designed to be static and we are looking for them to change, then that's going to be complicated and we're going to be disappointed and we're going to feel like that there are, are setbacks. How we work around our heads around making sure that we remember all the time that the system is doing what it's supposed to do, stay the same. Yeah. And so then that doesn't mean, though, that the work doesn't happen. You know, it was so nice for me yesterday to be at uh, that reading for the Love of It conference. The people who were coming to my session was so full that people were sitting on the floor. And that was because they, I was supposed to be there for two days, but because of job action, I couldn't be there today. That was a moment that sometimes I need to see those moments and see them, like actually visually see them where they take up space like that. So I can see that there are all of these people who want to do things differently, who want to do things better. And that just because the government is not shifting, just because our systems aren't shifting, doesn't mean that the individuals within the system themselves don't shift. Yeah. So it's like, for me, that's been really an important part of my own wellness 
is reminding myself about that. So when I feel really upset or um, defeated that things aren't changing, I go back and look at, oh, but think of all of these people who came to that workshop and they're all going to go back and have conversations with their colleagues. And maybe all of them aren't going to be able to move that work forward, but some of them will. And so that ripple effect will be changing bit by bit. I remember one of my favorite high school teachers, uh, Linda Martin, I saw her and I told her about this, this moment that I remembered from high school. And she said that she didn't remember being that profound, but, but I, I remembered this moment in, it was still grade 13 in Ontario at the time when I was there. And some of the students were really quite obnoxious to her. And I had said to her why I never thought I'd be a high school teacher, which is funny that here I've been 27 years. I had said to her, why do you do this job when people out of students treat you so poorly? And she had said, if I make a difference in one student's life, I know that there will be a great impact from that one person. And so when I get stuck, I try to think of that too. Like one person, changing one person every day. There's 365 days in a year. <laughs> and you look at how many, how many years that I'll be doing this job. One person every day. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So one elder that I do lots of work with, Nancy Rose, she, she says that we're creating an army with the teachers who come and want to learn and want to do things differently. That we're, we're creating an army of folks who are going to be doing things differently. I hope you enjoyed listening to the first part of my conversation with Kalinda. I'd like to say Chimi Gwech a big thank you again for her wisdom and for sharing so much of herself with us. If you found this episode to be meaningful or impactful for you, then you can support it by spreading the word through social media, emails, in your staff room. Tell people to check it out. You can also subscribe and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts to help more people find it. You can also support this project on Patreon. Becoming a micro-patron will help us expand our capacities to tell more of these stories. Getting Unschooled's associate producer is Alexandra Tapler. Our wonderful theme music is by Gabriel Fortuna. I look forward to speaking to you next episode when we continue our conversation with Kalinda and hear about her journey to deepen her connection with her culture and how she works to find sustainability in a role where she feels such a sense of moral responsibility to affect change for her community. <laughs>